Today's episode of The Mourner's Bench is brought to you by Reckless Love Church. Now, this ain't your typical church. Reckless Love prides itself on being a fellowship of people from all walks of life, committed to celebrating the image of God that exists in all of humanity and fully embracing all people. That's everybody. Everybody. All means all. At Reckless Love Church, you're human first and your Christian commitment is secondary, maybe even tertiary. It's a choice. To learn more, visit RecklessLoveChurch.org. That's RecklessLoveChurch.org. What is up, good people? Happy New Year, and welcome back to the Mourner's Bench. I'm Brandon Thomas. I'm Karen Teresa. KT, if you're nasty. Call me what you want. Just never call me Karen. I'm Malcolm David. I'm Pastor Sam. You sound like you're not excited to be here. I need you to chipper it up, sir. My bad. I'm Pastor Sam. I'm Pastor Sam. Sounded like Eeyore. (laughs) (laughs) At the end of 2020, we got a Christmas miracle out of Congress, another COVID-19 relief bill. In addition to $600 direct payments to many Americans, the bill also included some major wins for climate change. So we're going to talk about the climate and how Christians are complicit in killing the planet. Certainly are. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Certainly are. <laughs> Certainly are. <laughs> yes, indeed we do. Well, before we get into all of that, um, here are a few announcements. On Thursday, make sure you tune into the Mourner's Bench. We are going to start a new tradition of sorts. For us, this podcast is about so much more than just being a panel of talking heads that you listen to on Tuesdays and Thursdays. We are interested in connecting with you, our listeners, in meaningful ways. So this Thursday, we're going to start a new segment called Listener Views. I know it's cheesy, but I mean, it's like listeners being interviewed or like a listener perspectives. You see what I did there? That's what that means. Oh, okay. So creative. Oh, yes. You're a genius, Brandon. (laughs) I probably could come up with a better name, but for now, it's going to be called Listener Views, and y'all are welcome to give me an alternative. Uh, This Thursday, for our first Listener View, we will welcome Dr. Elizabeth Albright, who's the Assistant Professor of Environmental Science and Policy Methods at Duke University. I'm really excited about the conversation. Elizabeth is coming with a lot of uh, subject matter expert sorts of knowledge, and it's going to be a really great conversation for anyone who is interested in not just climate change, but the timeline of climate change throughout history, wherein you know you have liberal white folks concerned about global warming versus people concerned about access to clean water, which are deeply interrelated issues. If you want to hear about the intersectional ways that uh, climate change is a part of all of our lives and environmental activism should be a part of all of our lives, tune in on Thursday for that conversation. All right, friends, you know the drill. I think we can get on into it. Okay, so for nearly the last year, we have all been focused on COVID-19 and the pandemic, appropriately so. I mean, it's really ruled all of our lives. Uh, But that means in some ways, other equally important human concerns have taken a backseat to the pandemic. So like one of those things would be climate change. The last week of 2020, the New York Times released an article that highlighted just how bad 2020 was for the climate. The article had a lot of links to stories that had been released over the year that many of us probably missed because we were paying attention to the pandemic and trying to stay safe. But uh, like the California wildfires really did capture our attention for a while, but it quickly again took a back seat. But that went on for a really long time. Right. I mean, the California ones came on right after the Australia. I mean, Australia was on fire for so long as well. Those California fires burned over 4 million acres in California, wow. which was astronomical. 4 million are, acres. Yeah, 4 million. Um, and while fire is a natural part of kind of what happens in the forest, this was anything but a natural forest fire. It was hitting the top of these sequoias, you know, the the great sequoia trees that, that we have. Some of them are 36 feet in diameter and about 275 feet tall. The fire was so high that they were burning the tops of those trees, which typically that doesn't happen at all. And these fires felled some of the most ancient redwoods in California that are supposed to be naturally fire resistant, but the fire was so hot. And then also killed like over a million Joshua trees in the middle of the desert. So wildfires don't typically happen in the desert. Like people talk about the homes that were lost or in danger. And really what we've lost is an entire 
ecosystem. And and they talk about the redwoods and, and the sequoias and it's like, we can't get back there unless you have like 2,000 years to wait yeah. because some of those trees are like 3,200 years old. The, I'm sorry, I'm a little churchy. So when you say 2,000 years, my mm-hmm. Baptist stood up inside of me yeah. and I started to say, Jesus, he went to the cross 2,000 years ago. Okay, I'm sorry. It's fascinating, Katie, because you mentioned Australia. You mentioned the wildfires in California, but something that actually didn't attract as much attention were the blazes in the wetlands in South America. Hmm. This is an area which is larger than Greece, and it stretches over parts of Brazil, parts of Paraguay, parts of Bolivia. It offers like these unforeseen gifts to these large areas in South America. It helps regulate water cycle upon which all life depends in those areas. It, it has countless swamps and lagoons and tributaries that purify water and help prevent floods. And the wetlands are ablaze right now. Mm. It is absolutely insane. And you talk about how much life, how much we've lost in losing some of these ecosystems and how these things have been built over thousands of years. Uh, And because of the drought in these areas, which has been aided by global warming, we have to talk about the crisis that is affecting our world because we're losing it every day as a result of these things. Yeah, you know, those impacts are really being felt in like literally every corner of the planet. Even the furthest reaches of the earth are feeling the effects of climate change and the amount of, you know, warming and the the polar ice caps and the breaking apart of these like giant sheets of ice. I read a couple years ago, a piece of ice, like literally the size of Delaware uh, broke off of the North Pole. And those are places that probably none of us will ever visit in our lives. They feel like places that are really far off. But what's happening there has a tremendous impact on folks all around the world. And Kyle, I worked for a summer in Glacier National Park in Northwest Montana. And Glacier National Park earned its name from the, I think, roughly 60 glaciers that are within the the boundaries of the park. And by 2045, Glacier National Park will have no more glaciers. And to think about that as something that's happening, not in some far off distant future, but in our lifetimes, um, really not that far away. You really begin to realize just how much of an impact climate change has really all over the planet. And the intent here is not to go doom and gloom. We oftentimes have climate change discussions and it can sound like, oh my God, the world is going to end. And that's not really the discussion we're trying to have today, but we are trying to highlight that it is really, really bad. And most of us aren't paying enough attention to it. And I'll even say I'm complicit in that. I don't pay enough attention to this topic. But I think what's most horrible is the fact that it seems to me that people of faith are some of the worst climate deniers. So as a result of the failure of many Christian leaders to speak on this topic in a clear, prophetic and compelling way, those who should be some of the greatest advocates for combating climate change end up doing the most harm. I have an, an interesting experience, I think, because I served a church in North Carolina that was one of the first 10 congregations in the PCUSA to be identified as an earth care congregation. And they have really led the way on earth care advocacy as well as locally and nationally and globally, as well as those personal things that we do about recycling and composting and things like that. One joke about the church was that on the Sunday morning, the parking lot would look like a Prius dealership because everybody... <laughs> (laughs) (laughs) What's dropping Prius with, you know, all the liberal bumper stickers on it. But because of this experience, I guess I wasn't necessarily aware of how bad it is until I walk into another church and they leave the lights on there. They use an enormous amount of paper, those kinds of things. They're not engaged in the advocacy work that this particular congregation was. In the Presbyterian church, I think we've taken some really good stands on how we should deal with with the environment and how we can do that. But I think that's not typical of the church. I mean, I think that's either church people don't care or they're actively, like in the evangelical churches, they're actively taking the stand against the actual existence of climate change. Yeah, I mean, I think the for a lot of evangelical Christians, the issue just feels completely unimportant to them. And it's tied to this deeper set of theological values about like the old, 
passing away and and this new like kingdom of God coming to replace the physical earth. And so there's just sort of, for some people, I think just a real disinterest and caring for this world because our hope is supposed to be oriented someplace else, you know, somewhere beyond kind of where we are here. I certainly remember in the church that I grew up in, there was a strong emphasis on what folks would have described as, you know, well, turn your attention to the spiritual, not the material, because the material doesn't matter. And that got talked about in terms of like material possessions and accumulating wealth and stuff like that. But it also got talked about in terms of how we interact with creation. And I think for a lot of folks, it just wasn't particularly important to care for this thing if you believe that this thing is corrupt and passing and fleeting anyway. That resonates with my experience a lot as well, Malcolm, because even though I think that this manifests in a particular way in certain white evangelical contexts, I think it also can be present in black congregations as well, at least ones that I've been a part of. Anytime that I've ever tried to have a conversation, whenever I'm like, hey, let's start to recycle, even though recycling has issues as well, like we should just be reusing stuff, but that's a different conversation. Whenever I'm like, hey, let's start to recycle, the response would always be, we don't need to recycle. Like God is going to come back. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. And we all just, you know, just living to live again on another life. And I'm like, no, like we like y'all are trying to speed up the Lord's return by killing the planet. And maybe the Lord won't return. Maybe like that's not on God's timetable. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. That's interesting. It's usually not this argument, this theological arg- argument about the Lord's return. It wasn't in your church? No, no, no. And so it's either two, it's two different, there's there's two different streams of thought that I've encountered around this. And so from rural Alabama in the country where I'm from, I think people just don't care. And I think it's because of lack of exposure and understanding around the impact that not taking action is having on the world that we share. And so there are small things that many of these churches could be doing that could be making a huge difference. But I just don't think that they are aware of their impact on this earth. And so I think there's a certain degree of ignorance in some areas of the world about exactly what they can be doing and the impact that it would have. But then there are some other circles who are kind of like, we've got other issues that we're concerned about. Like we got, especially in black churches, I'm, I'm talking about black churches. So let me talk about the black experience. And so folks will be talking about recycling, but we getting shot down in the street by the police. And so I think we have to do better with being concerned about multiple things at the same time. We have to be able to know that it's very important for us to protest the systems and the structures that are killing us, but then to also understand that we're contributing to the killing or the the eventual death of our planet. And we have to figure out what it looks like to respond to both. I mean, in our conversation with Betsy, I mean, that was, that was part of the conversation that we are having. Um, you have this, oh, we need to recycle and, and, and drive Priuses and, and compost and stuff. And then there's people who have raw sewage backing up into their yard or they're getting shot in the streets. And those are, you know, and, and the streets are hotter in areas where lower income folks are living because of the redlining. It's like all co- the complexity arise and it all can be drawn back to this environmental impact. And so it's the only way of dealing with it is not to say we all need to compost or we all need to recycle or we all need to drive electric cars. But the reality is that it's this advocacy piece. It's, it's really saying this situation that your life is in, that our lives are in, are really impacted by the environment. All of the justice work that we do and all of the causes about which we are passionate are connected to other causes, connected to other justice right. concerns. In academic circles, in seminaries, on NPR, in the New York Times, we see that buzzword intersectionality. And I think we've trained people to utilize it, but it's just a buzzword. And we don't take the time to figure out how are things actually intersectional. If the last four years taught us anything, it's that if we are killing black people in the streets at a higher rate than we were in the past without consequence or repercussion, it's likely the case that we're also killing the planet off in the same way. It's also likely the case that we're killing LGBTQ folks in the same way. It's also likely the case that we're killing people who are homeless, people who are impoverished off in the same way. And so for me, I don't want to get to a place where I forget that because same as you were mentioning, my first thing is to quickly to say, well, we got these other concerns about like Black Lives Matter and Flint still doesn't have clean water, right? And that's a black community. And I think 
sometimes it's hard to realize Flint not having clean water is just a microcosm of a broader issue. Black folks and poor folks everywhere are struggling to have access to clean water. We have to teach folks that this is all connected. In some ways, that's where it becomes overwhelming, right? Because because it is so deep and so complex. And if it is all interconnected, then there's ways of addressing all of those problems at once. If we're talking to one another, or is that too Pollyanna? I think it requires us, my people, (laughs) it requires me to be listening, but it requires us as white people, or we who are in the middle class, to be listening to those who are lower income, working poor, not have running water, or not have have raw sewage in their yard. These are the kinds of things that we need to be listening to and advocating for. That feels a little bit more Pollyanna-ish than I want. I'm trying to wrestle with my frustrations. So uh, one of the challenges when we talk about climate change and we talk about the way we respond to such serious issue is when we think about the U.S., being such a small portion of the world's population, but such a large contributor to the world's pollution and to speeding up the effects of climate change on the earth. I think there's a reality that those of us who are Western American also have a unique obligation to be aware of our role in climate change. One of the things that makes me think of is the Green New Deal. We'll talk about this more on Thursday with Elizabeth Albright, but briefly, there's this great video from Vox Media that gives an overview of the Green New Deal. We heard a lot about it on the campaign trail and no one ever really knew exactly what it was, but it sounded really good. The short version is the Green New Deal isn't actually policy. It doesn't rise to that level, but it is an ideology. It is a commitment. What it does do is clearly frame the issue and how massive it is. The first half of the document is like 15 pages. It talks about how so many jobs are dependent on the fossil fuel industry. And if we were to end our dependency or decrease our dependency on fossil fuels, jobs are at stake. Livelihoods are at stake and not just for the corporations and the billionaires. Now, the second half of the commitment, it says we won't let this happen. The Green New Deal is, at least in ideology, an intersectional commitment that ensures that wealth is redistributed again, at least conceptually, and it ensures that there will be jobs for folks as a result of this new commitment. It's a commitment to protect the planet and the people who inhabit it. And I think a lot of times our climate debates, our climate dialogues don't take that seriously. Again, this is just a concept, but it is a commitment nonetheless. And regardless of the tactical arguments that people make to discredit it, they you know say Bernie Sanders can't govern or Nancy Pelosi won't ever pass it or Mitch McConnell um, isn't going to let this go in the Senate, blah, 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 blah. But conceptually, it's a really great starting place because at least for me, it takes intersectionality, it takes our interdependence, it takes both people and the planet seriously. Now, why on earth, the way that you just explained that, now why on earth would anybody oppose the Green New Deal? Oh, well, I think one of the things is that one of the people that I've heard talk about the Green New Deal has talked about um, that it's it's a place to build kind of this shared understanding, like a shared starting point. The people who are against it, even, even Democrats who are against it say, oh, this is too big, this is going to cost too much money. They haven't even laid out anything. It's just trying to set the groundwork for where we begin. And I think so many of the problems that we end up with politically is people are talking about totally different issues, and so you can't get anywhere. So it was an attempt to say this is where we are but if you want to say this is where we are then you have to admit there's a whole lot of shit going on there's a whole lot of people who don't have water there's a whole lot of people who are living right next door to enormous pollution that's causing healthcare problems and these are people that don't have healthcare so what the green some of these promises are this universal healthcare and guaranteed jobs and this education training people know that that is going to cost so much. But the reality is those problems exist or the lack of that exists because for centuries, for generations, since the actual founding of this country, we have been denying this to black and brown folks. And it's a total restart. So that's why they oppose it. Well, and most often what we hear 
are tactical arguments. We don't actually think about the structural changes. So when we talk about the Green New Deal, what the news, what CNN, MSNBC, Fox News carry is, Nancy Pelosi's never going to vote for this, right? Or uh, Mitch McConnell's never going to let this pass the House. Or what, what are they called? The squad's not going to be able to get, like, it's personality driven, like churches are, right? It's all around these figureheads and what they represent and the power that they hold. Instead of just saying, hey, we just passed, like, two huge spending bills for COVID-19 and the pandemic. So what that demonstrates to me is there's a lot of shit that we actually could do that we just choose not to do. And when we don't want to do it, we spend time in the tactical stuff as opposed to talking about a way forward. Going back to this notion that all of this work is intersectional, it is imperative to understand that with many of the issues that emerge as a result of global warming and climate change. So let's talk about hurricanes for a second, right? We got all these hurricanes that come into the coast and they sweep neighborhoods apart. And many of these neighborhoods are still impoverished and have never been restored back to what they were prior to a hurricane hitting them. But because of real estate practices and redlining and making sure that black and brown people and poor people are the folks who were housed there, climate change actually does have direct correlations with Black Lives Matter, with women's rights or human rights. Like all of these things connect to climate change because if we don't have this broad sweeping change, what's gonna continue to happen is that communities of color, poor communities, black communities are going to be swept away by natural disasters and the unnatural disasters, if you will, that emerge as a result of what happens. If there's an oil spill in the ocean as a result of a hurricane, black folks are gonna feel that the most. Poor folks are gonna feel that the most. If there's an industrial fire that comes after a hurricane, Black and brown folks in that industrial town are going to be the ones that feel that the most, while those who are middle class, upper middle class, even us, we're not sitting here saying, oh my gosh, hear us, you're horrible people. We're including ourselves in this, or I'm including myself in this. For the neighborhoods where we live, for the jobs that we have, for the healthcare that we have, we also will not feel these things as much. But it's about building that muscle, that empathy muscle to be able to say, yeah, I probably will be able to move to a neighborhood where this isn't going to end impact me, but there's going to be at least a million other people right around the corner who aren't going to be able to do the same thing. So I grew up on the Gulf Coast and literally hurricanes were a part of life growing up about 35 minutes from the beach. There was a reality whenever hurricanes, and no matter what size, I mean, category one, category four, category five, there was always a reality that there were people who could not evacuate. There were people who could not leave. They had nowhere to go. They had no transportation. They had no money to move out of the way of the storm's path. Often we'll see people trying to board up their houses or trying to take measures to keep their property safe because they're staying during a storm. They're going to stay there during the storm. And oftentimes people will say, oh, they're stupid. Why don't they just go? Some people can't go. And if you think about the inability for people to move out of one storm's path, think about how folks will be affected by climate change if they can't leave town for a day to evacuate a storm, think about the millions of people who will be affected drastically by climate change and by what happens over the course of the next few decades if we don't make some significant changes to the way we live on this earth. And how we impact people even beyond our borders. Yes. You've got folks who are in Latin America, Guatemala, who have no carbon footprint, but they're impacted by global warming. Their crops are going down because the drought is everywhere. And so you've got folks in other countries where they have petroleum refineries and and so they're impacted by the gas that's going off all the time. These are all countries where a church might send a mission project to go talk about Jesus down in, in Africa or down in Latin America, but they're not necessarily realizing that the impact of their daily lives and of our country's structure, our country's laws are actually impacting those same people negatively. Oh yeah. A couple of vehicles ago, I had a car that sprung a small oil leak. Those who are astute in working on vehicles told me immediately, you, you can't let this just go. You need to get this checked out. And I'm like, what the that? I mean, just, you know, just to, just to have people find out what's wrong is expensive. I don't have any money. They says, yes, but the cost that you will incur 
if you don't address this now, it's going to be so much greater than any cost if you go ahead and start dealing with the issue. And anybody who's had an automobile, if a light comes on on your dash, you don't just keep driving with your check engine light on. I mean, some people do, but they pay the cost down the road. We wouldn't do this with our automobile. We wouldn't do this if our furnace started making a crazy noise in the house. Why are we doing this to our planet? Why are we not addressing the oil leaks? Why are we not addressing the, the crazy sounds, the issues that are happening? And so, no, we can't afford to do nothing. Right, exactly. And I think what, what folks are doing is like, oh, there might be a problem, as opposed to the fact that we do have these flashing oil lights that are out here. We have people, we have names, we have places that we can identify and articulate so so that the conversation has been like, oh, uh, the planet's going to end in X you know, whatever century, right? Except the problem is now. And so we need to, I mean, I like that image, Sam, of the, we've got these check engine lights all over the place. And perhaps it is essential that we start articulating them and pointing them out because this is an imminent problem. It's not something that's 10 years down the road. We've way passed the first time the engine light has come on. We need to deal with it now. The engine is like, like it's making noise at this yeah. juncture. <laughs> like it's time for us to do something different. So the first half of this episode. Wait, what, is it? what is it doing? Now we turn into car talk. Right? That's your starter. That's not even the engine. The, the starter messed the up too. The starter messed up. The engine messed up. There's an oil spot on the ground below the car. It's all messed up. The belt ain't turning right. The, the car stuttering when y'all all of it is messed up. Like, it's an emergency. Like, <laughs> take it to the dealership. So, the first half of this episode was designed to create this sense of urgency for you. If you're not someone who understands or believes that climate change is an issue or a concern that we should all have, this was the check engine light. So, now we want to move to the mechanic shop and we want to think about why this is important theologically, why it's important um, in terms of a faith commitment and or a commitment to humanity. Let's take a quick break. Hey there, it's KT. One of the things I love about the Mourner's Bench is the way we hear different perspectives among the four of us and from you, our listeners. If you are enjoying what you hear on the Mourner's Bench and you want to support the upcoming work of Theolab Media, please consider visiting patreon.com forward slash Theolab Media to begin making a monthly contribution. No matter the giving level, you'll get access to exclusive Mourner's Bench and Theolab media content by donating. Again, head on over to patreon.com forward slash Theolab media to contribute. Let's get back into it. All right, so your check engine light is on and let's take this conversation to the mechanic. One of the things that I'm committed to doing better in 2021, one of my new year intentions, and I have made this intention or declaration before, but it's to not contribute to the liberal echo chamber. So many times we get in conversations with progressive liberals and it's all about like a woke battle. Who's the most woke? Who's read the most recent article? Who can cite the you know best source? And we all sit there trying to prove that we're the most woke person in the room. And I don't have the energy. I don't have the time. I don't have the patience for that anymore. That's not my story. That ain't my glory. It is important to clearly identify problems and to explain what's at stake, but it is equally important to point towards solutions and to those who are doing the work, perhaps that we could join in. Like one thing that came up for me as I was uh, chilling at the house for the holidays, there was this uh, guerrilla poster campaign. I believe it was in London where a church put posters up all over London and it said a child is born and then it had a picture of the manger and it says what kind of future do we want for our children climate emergency act now I mean and that's building public awareness in some ways it is a very uh, brow beating type of message but that's something that a particular community did to make a difference on climate change and to raise awareness. Who else or what else do you see doing this type of work? And for those who identify as Christian or with any sort of faith tradition, how do we ground this sort of work theologically? And if you're not familiar with the term theologically, that's theo, God, logi, a study of, the study of God, God talk to make it even more plain. I went to one church where the bulletin was um, a downloadable thing that you looked at on your smartphone. So, 
So that's a really easy shift that congregations can make. Print out a few for folks who don't have a smartphone and the rest of us can look at the bulletin on our, on our phones. And so I think there are simple changes that churches can make that folks aren't even, th- people don't even have the commitment to some kind of creativity to think about things differently. I'm supposed to be positive right now. I think that's one of the changes that we can make, but it's going to require us to let go of, we've never done it like that and say, how is it that we can do this differently? I got to be honest with you. I'm in some ways ashamed. I'm thinking about the last at least three churches that I've been affiliated with. I've only been affiliated with three churches my entire life. And from childhood until, you know, a few weeks ago, I can't think of any significant ways that these churches have been involved in combating climate change or pollution or, I mean, anything. And one of these churches is a fairly large church here in Atlanta that is very, that prides itself on having a very politically active pastor who advocates for all types of things. But the church itself barely lifted a finger to institute really small common sense things that can help combat climate change. And for the last four years, I was a part of the leadership of that church. And so, you know, as we have this conversation, I'm just embarrassed, really. And what do you do with that? I think that's oftentimes the emotion that comes up. Like, I'm with you. I haven't worked in a church for the last three years, but for every church that I attended, for every church at which I worked, when I reflect on it, we wasn't doing nothing. And we would take hundreds of children, 300 plus children on these trips across the country. And we would have water bottles, like 300 water bottles for every single stop on the trip, multiple stops. We had hundreds of thousands of water bottles that we contributed to the planet. And it's like, why did no one ever think to take that budget for water bottles and create reusable water bottles? What do you do when you get beyond the shame? I know what the answer is supposed to sound like. I'm still questioning, I'm still wondering like how, how if I'm thinking about these congregations that I've been a part of, right? I'm thinking about how do you even go in and begin to have conversations with the different levels of leadership to help them understand that this is an important issue and then to begin to figure out how you implement these pieces, some of these structures, some of these common sense things is going to help make even a small impact in the communities around them. Those are some of the ways that I would say we move forward. I guess I'm already thinking about how effective some of these conversations will be in some of these congregations that I've been a part of. And unfortunately, I think it would be an enormous battle even just implementing some small things. It seems so insurmountable when I think about the culture that has been constructed in these places over time. And and I, I guess that's what's going through my head. So the biggest thing to remember is, as we talked about in the first half of the episode, this is a very large scale issue and it does feel daunting and it does does feel cumbersome and it does feel challenging and I always like to ask people what is the goal what is the goal and a different way to frame that is what is God calling you to that's that was my pastor language right what is God calling you to and sometimes the situation is so dire and so complex and so heavy that it feels like I don't even know what the goal is I can't even discern what God is calling me to okay what is the most faithful next step you can take. Don't worry about the whole plan. Don't worry about the whole roadmap. Don't worry about all of the things. What's the next most faithful step or the most faithful next step you can take? If I were still pastoring, I could only pastor at a church that valued humanism and would allow me to be playful and use my uh, sanctified imagination. I was reading in preparation for this episode and went back to Greek mythology and I looked up, is the earth a deity in Greek mythology? And what I found is this woman named Gaia. So Gaia is a deity in Greek mythology who is also the personification of earth. She's earth embodied. She's the ancestral mother of all life. And so for me, I think what I would do in a congregation, like if I were pastoring, the most faithful next step I could take is to start preaching about this regularly. And to say, for all of us who sit here talking about God is good all the time and all the time God is good. For all of us who sit here talking about God being ever present in our lives, moving in our lives, working in our lives, that's an abstract concept. And oftentimes, you know, we can't even describe it. It's just like, ooh, something just felt, something just felt so good. God is moving. Okay, what if we made God earth? 
And every time we said God is good all the time and all the time God is good, the image that came to mind was the planet. And then my next question in that sermon series would be, so if God, earth is good all the time, what is your relationship to God and the earth? Are you good to God? Are you good to the earth Hmm. all the time? That should be a reciprocal relationship. I'm not certain when this started, but there's been this impulse to shrink our theology, shrink our canon, and to focus more and more nearly on a few scriptures, more and more nearly on a few characters, more and more nearly on a few stories. And so our faith is here. I can count on hearing John 3.16. I can count on hearing Romans 3.23. I can count on hearing the parable of the sower. I can count on hearing crucifixion. I can count on hearing the nativity. But there's 66 books, and that's just the ones that we all agreed on. What does it look like to bring those other stories in? I can preach in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth and the earth was without form. And what does it mean for God to begin to shape the earth and form the earth and make Gaia? Hmm. A woman, an embodied being. That shifts my relationship to the earth if I think about the earth as Gaia. That's my most faithful next step if I were pastoring. I got to pull, I got to dig deep down into my Baptist Shondo, ha. Huh? You are Y'all your mother's child. You are your mother's child. Hey, glory. Growing up in the church, the, the sanctuary was a sacred place. The pulpit was a sacred place. As a matter of fact, if a child jumped up and started walking on that pulpit, Brandon, come on now, you know, I know you know what I'm talking about. Do not do it. They'll snatch you down real quick. Don't you walk across there. That's holy ground. You go another way. That's holy. And I think about one of my favorite scriptures in Psalms. It says, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof the world and all that dwell therein. I mean, it's clearly stating that the earth is God's. The earth is the Lord's. If we treated it with as much reverence as we did the pulpit, there's no way, there's no way we wouldn't be caring for it much better than we do now. And that's a much more accessible example, right? When you start talking about Gaia and Greek mythology and stuff, that's why I said I can't be a pastor no more because I think that that type of stuff is relevant. So they would need to know in the interview. That's what I'm going to say. But I think what you're outlining, Sam, is much more tangible. It's much more accessible to certain congregations to be able to say whatever reverence you associate with the pulpit, keeping clean water, I mean, that, that's a thing, ain't it, right? You, you got the church, the, the earth are going to walk behind the pulpit, not in the pulpit, with her hand behind her back in black churches with a little cloth covering the pitcher. She's going to put that fresh cup of water on the pulpit for the pastor when the pastor get done preaching. If we had the same type of reverence for the earth that at least in black churches we have for the pulpit, that's a, yeah. that's a, that's a faithful next step. That is definitely a black church thing. That is not a liberal white church thing. Y'all so. children be running well, through the pulpit, coloring on the pulpit. On the pulpit and playing chess and shit. No, no, get off the pulpit. I think all of that is good, though. I think, I think for different people, engage it in different ways. So some, for some people, Gaia is going to be this great, thing that will that that embodiment helps you and and for some people this idea of the reverence of the pulpit i mean yes i agree with everything you're saying brandon that we do we we each have our own canon right i mean we each have the 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 scriptures that we want to preach every time i just of all the things that i wrestle with about scripture and about the the sheer lack of things it doesn't say, or even the fact that it, it assumes that Jesus doesn't show up right now today to talk with, I mean, like with all the limitations of our canon, I am astonished that there isn't a commitment to stewardship of God's creation. And again, that comes from the fact that, you know, the context that I grew up in, that that was really important. And so, um, maybe it's my mom, you know, maybe it's that, uh, the culture of my family, but... Genesis 1 is getting us right there to care about it. We, we start with creation. And so I think that there's so many different ways though that we can talk about this. And I think it, it, I think it involves telling the stories and pointing out the engine lights that are flashing. And, that, and that's gonna look different for different people. It's gonna get, look different for different populations. Um, if I'm ever in a church again, which I can't imagine that happening any more than for you, Brandon, I hope somebody puts clean water in my in the pulpit, man, 
I always had to carry up my ratty looking water bottle. I'd love a nice glass with clean oh, water. We're going to invite you to come preach at some of these black Baptist churches. You're going to be like, wow, y'all treat us mighty nice. You're going to have snacks <laughs> and stuff. It's going to be real cute. Snacks too? Yes, snacks. But even if we're thinking about things that are tangible, if you just took the concept of Sabbath, resting, taking time off. In the Christian tradition, we talk about God creating the heavens and the earth for six days, and then on the seventh day, resting, not creating anything, modeling what it means to take a break, to detach, to be restored, to be renewed, to be rejuvenated. And if we took that concept and we said, first of all, let's talk about what it means for you as a human to have Sabbath, it may mean you need to go follow the nap ministry because ultimately half of y'all ain't resting. I know I don't rest as much as I should, but I'm trying to do better. But if we learn how to teach ourselves to rest and we see what happens, what good comes for us as individuals when we rest, how might we apply that same metric to the earth? What does it look like to offer the earth Sabbath? Could COVID-19 have been a time where we were offering the earth a type of Sabbath? In some ways, I think it was an involuntary Sabbath. I think it was, I think it was maybe even God saying, uh, my earth needs some rest. If y'all don't know how to make Sabbath, I'm going to send this. No, (laughs) that's so Baptist and Southern. (laughs) I hate it. But but no, I think you're right. It is an involuntary Sabbath of sorts. I wish I had the articles now, but I was reading, especially at the, like those first few months of the pandemic, there was, there were articles out talking about like in certain places where there had been like the air was so polluted that you couldn't see, like you actually could see great distances, like the fog had started to clear up, like pollution was starting to lift. And so that's one of the reasons that I say, maybe this was kind of a sort of involuntary Sabbath. Maybe this was this was a way of, of God saying, wait, y'all, y'all killing this earth. Let me just push pause. I don't mean that to make light of the deaths or the serious illness that people have endured during this pandemic. I'm not saying that God is killing all folks so that God can save the earth, but there has been an effect of this pandemic on the way that we were like full throttle affecting the earth. I mean, there's, there's models for that in scripture, which I mean, I think we should be talking about scripture for those of us who are shaped in Christian churches, whether or not you still agree with uh, the tradition or belong to the tradition, we should definitely still be talking about scripture. And I think we should be turning these stories on their head. There is a way in which the story of the ark, Noah and the ark models what you're talking about. I mean, that's in the Christian canon, the Judeo-Christian canon, the Hebrew Bible. Things get so bad on the earth where God's like, you know what, I'm going to destroy it all with a flood. And then after we destroyed all of that flood, then here's the new life. Here's the creation. I don't think that that's what we should be doing because I think that going back to the beginning of the episode, that's part of the issue for evangelical Christians is if you read the Bible a certain way, it talks about the next time God using fire to destroy the earth. And so if that's my theological perspective, it's that if that's my formation and I think we got like a week to live. We got a week. Right. California's burning, the wetlands are drying Australia. up. Australia's yeah, burning. Geez. Jesus is about to come back. Go read first John. Go read second John. Go read Revelation. He's coming back on a Honda. That's <laughs> imperative that we start to say, like, yeah. The, the, script, the scriptures that we read, the Bible that we read does form our relationship with the earth. And if we're not careful, then we're going down this slippery slope that leads to the very challenges that we're trying to provide some sort of redress for. So that doesn't provide any answers. Thursday's episode is going to have additional, more practical conversations. There are these very practical things that some of us can do, depending on your socioeconomic status, depending on your neighborhood. There's an organization called Compost Now. If you don't know what composting is, it's letting your food naturally deteriorate and go back to its natural state where it can provide additional resources to the ground, to the soil. Some people use that soil to then plant additional food. And so it's returning the earth back to itself. Compost now, they bring you a container and a guide and you can put all of your banana peels and all your coffee grounds and all the other things inside of the bin and they come and pick it up for you. And then they bring you a new bin. You ain't got to worry about the stench. So there are practical things that we can do. It's not all just about thinking theologically. It's not all about changing the policy. That's an important part, but I would say for everyone who's listening, think about your most faithful next step and commit to it for at least the next year. It's 2021. Happy New Year. Think about one thing you can do that's rooted in your particular view of humanity, your view of the world, or either your faith, and make that choice every single day. Let's take another quick break and then go to our altar call. 
right, good people. So the time has come and the hour is nigh. We have come once again to the end of an episode. And before we let you go, you know what we've got to do. We've got to put a few people on the mourner's bench before we go. So let us all go back to the altar and get a few folks saved. Hallelujah. Who's on the bench? Ooh, I want to put. I was going to put that right on the bench. Y'all see, you're going to get your ass whooped. I ain't scared. If you're feeling froggy. As we're talking about churches and the impact of climate change, pollution, and all of these issues, I want to put styrofoam and paper plates and paper <laughs> and plastic forks on the bench. Because if you go to a black church in the country <sighs> and they feed you, uh huh, you going to get your food in a mm-hmm. carry-out styrofoam to go plate. Yes, you will. Or, or or just a regular round circular styrofoam plate with a piece of aluminum foil on it. With top. a second plate on top and the foil covering it with all. a second plate on top of the foil, and that's usually going to have your, your bread and your dessert in it. And you're going to get a plastic fork. And you're going to the put church. it all in a plastic bag. And they're going to put it all in a plastic bag, one of them thank you bags. It's not. It might be Walmart or something, but it might just be one of the bags that say thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you, mm-hmm. down the front of it. smiley faces. Uh, <laughs> and, and what you know I about the thank you bags? And while I appreciate the church's attempt and desire to make sure that you are nourished after visiting that congregation and worshiping with them, and they are so kind, and that chicken is fried to perfection. Yes, let me is. tell you, that macaroni is dripping with cheese. Oh yeah, listen, it'll bless your soul real good. Yeah, but. We got to put these things on the bench, this styrofoam plate and this plastic flatware and all of these things that are contributing to further pollution. We got to, it's on the bench. I don't know. I feel like the styrofoam makes it taste better. If it ain't got styrofoam and it don't melt a little bit because of how hot that uh, macaroni and you know how it melt a little bit, it'd be too hot. And so it's styrofoam is on the bench. And that one mean lady that won't let you get an extra scoop of macaroni and cheese, her ass is on the bench too. <laughs> Talking about everybody got to eat. I you know everybody got to eat. But y'all got enough macaroni and cheese back there. Baby, you need to you need to take a little break on the macaroni and cheese is what it look like. <laughs> Ooh, the, the people who serve at the church meals, they are some of the meanest people in the world. <laughs> Don't nobody want your green beans no way. That's because they trying to take the leftovers back home and so they dipping extra light so they can take all of that stuff. I know how it is. I know what they doing. Did y'all's churches do potlucks? They all on the bench. Oh yeah, I grew up on a potluck. You know how to like put food on your plate so that you can like get the most possible but Brent, I see your face. It's just so nasty. <laughs> you build up immunity that way. Oh, immunity. What what did y'all potlucks have? Though? Did y'all have a whole bunch of salads? Like you, because you know white people, they'd be like, "I'm gonna make a little a macaroni salad," and then they go and they freeze and they'd be like, "Macaroni noodles, craisins, cranberries, no. almonds, no, this is sunflower thing, seeds, like the church that I, <laughs> mayonnaise, the church that I pickles." Y'all just throw anything in there. Be like, "I made a macaroni salad." No, that's not and a salad. Like a Waldorf salad or something like that. Um, y'all make up a name for us. Yeah. Salad in a minute too. Salad is salad. Lettuce. <laughs> I grew up on good potlucks. Um, it wasn't the church in Chapel Hill. They were like, "Should we bring some hummus and pita squares?" I mean, it took a while for them to figure out how to do a, a potluck. But one of the things they did do well is you bring your own plates and silverware, and then um, then you take them home. That 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 means that you wash your own dishes, and then you take you know you bring clean dishes, you wash, take them home and wash them. That means that there aren't like three of the little old ladies in the church sitting in the kitchen for another three hours washing up everybody's dishes. So it's actually stewardship of the environment and of everybody's time. So before this, y'all had real dishes for y'all's meals. Oh wait, you right? No, uh, gosh, you're fascinating. Y'all got privilege, honey. Y'all had a whole china set in y'all sanctuary. (laughs) I have been in a church like that. Not this other church, but... um, Y'all all all got Priuses. Y'all all all got Teslas. Y'all got china in the church so that y'all can be environmentally responsible. Amen. Not in that church. Thank God for your church (laughs) because your home life was... 
more. And it's just, I'm just thankful that the church exposed you to to something other than poverty. Amen. Not that church. <laughs> I brought back my clothes. <laughs> If you don't know what we're talking about, go listen to the Christmas episode. So styrofoam plates, styrofoam cups, styrofoam everything, plastic everything is going on the bench. I would like to request that I have one save for me because I do want one more meal out of it because something makes it taste better in the styrofoam. I'm sorry. Next pastor's anniversary I attend, I'll bring my own plate. Who else is on the bench? The cancer that you get from melted styrofoam. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, because if you put that on the bench, then I can have it without any worries. I love it. Put that on the bench too. <laughs> Just because it's on the bench doesn't make it go away. Oh, right. Mitch McConnell's on the bench. Right. He's still there messing things up. Have y'all seen his hand lately? <laughs> he still has one. <laughs> Who else is on the bench? So I um, I read an article by Catherine Hayhoe. I'm not sure if that's how you say her name, but she works in, in Texas. You're shaking your head. Uh, how you spell it, Katie? H a y h o e. That's how I pronounce it. Let's call it That's what I was saying. Hey. Oh. Okay. Miss Catherine, we are so sorry. I know because she's not the one going on the bench. She's amazing, but why is her name Hey Ho? I mean, that had to be horrible in high school. Miss Catherine, we apologize for picking on your name. We love your name. Sam, you gonna apologize to a white woman you don't even know when you give Katie such a hard time every week? You don't apologize to her? If her name was Hey-Ho, I would apologize to her too. (laughs) (laughs) Well, here's the funny thing. Her husband is an evangelical pastor. I don't know if that's her her birth name or her married name. Is she a... What's the biblical story where the man had to marry a prostitute? No. This is not Hosea and Goma. No, don't. No, no, no. You just called this woman a prostitute. What if she's listening to the podcast? Catherine, we do not judge you. We love your last name, but. She's not going on the bench. She is not the one going on the bench, but she is a climate scientist. Right. And she, but her husband is a, a pastor of an evangelical church. <laughs> Done. And um, somebody said to her at church one Sunday, do you believe in climate change? And she said, climate change isn't a belief system. And so I want to put everybody on the bench who thinks that this is something we believe in. This is a science. This is, these are facts. They're the climate or the earth is warming up. Climate change is a problem. It's a reality. It's not something we have to believe or not believe in. It is a fact. So all of those people who would say that this isn't true, I just wanted to say this woman's name. Apparently I should have left it out. But anyway, I want to put everybody on a bench who doesn't think you're onto something with her name you really are so once i want to honor you Catherine. you chose this last name because wikipedia says your full name is Catherine and scott hey ho so that means your maiden name was probably <laughs> scott and your husband's name is pastor hey ho i feel like if we leaned into the hey ho <laughs> if, if we lean into the hey ho i think we would get black people all kind of behind climate change. That's the new ad campaign for climate change. Hey ho! And then you know you add whatever little climate change facts. This fact comes after that, right? And that's how you get their attention. Hey ho! And then you do a climate change fact. Climate change has got to go. Yes. What if we said that Pastor? What's her name? What's her first name? Her name is Catherine. What if we said that Pastor and Catherine? Wow. This. What if we said, hey, hoes support. Uh, that went left. <laughs> hey, hoes are climate change deniers. Is that it? Hey, the uh, hoes support climate change. I mean, this could also. We talk I don't want to be a hoe, though. This could support sex workers as well. Hoes support climate change. Like, hey, hoes support climate change. I'm just trying to figure out how we get creative here. You know, I mean, her last name has a lot of potential. Thank you so much for lifting up her name, Ashe. Actually, her f- husband's name is last name is Farley, so that does go away. Interesting. Wait, so she chose to keep that name? Then is that what that means? That's what happened, <laughs> Malcolm. She chose this thing. No, I don't think so. I think she wants this last name, one way or the other. It's because of what we're saying. She thinks it has potential for climate change. Hey ho, the hey ho campaign. Hey ho, I vote for you for climate secretary. <laughs> 
Oh, that's a great <laughs> idea. Secretary oh. Hey Ho. What? Hey-ho. Secretary Hey <laughs> Who else is on the bench? I think if we're having a conversation about climate change, we need to put the generational divide on the bench. And what I mean by that is when you look at public opinion polling on support for addressing climate change, the most stark boundary in that polling is along the lines of of age. Younger people overwhelmingly support addressing environmental issues through big government action. And that's true regardless of their political party. It's true regardless of their educational or socioeconomic level. It's true regardless of their race, their gender. Really, I mean, the the biggest dividing line on this issue is is one of age. And I don't like the like the okay boomer argument. I like I'm not I'm not trying to go there and I'm not trying to say that every older person doesn't care. I mean, I, that's simply not true. There are lots of, of older people who for a long time have been doing good work on this issue. But if you look at the people who are still denying that climate change exists by and large that is older people and i think the reality is young people look at these issues and they realize that this is the planet that they have to live in right that like you have no choice but to address these issues because this is literally your home and it is for you know lord willing years or or decades into the future and i think a lot of older americans don't feel the urgency of the issue in the same way. And so they've chosen to let go of their responsibility. Yeah, I mean, I think this notion of putting the generational divide on the bench is important, right? Because we oftentimes draw lines in the sand and we we are on one side and the other people are on the other side and we don't even like have the space to figure out how to build allies between whatever the divide is. And so there is a way in which I think that reflects my experience in some ways. There's less of a sense of urgency about climate change for those who aren't going to be around long enough to experience whatever the impacts are. But there are still these little glimmers of hope sometimes. Like I used to make excuses for my family because oftentimes when you're dealing with LGBTQ people, what I would say is, well, you know, they're just a person of a certain age or, well, you know, they were born at a certain time period. And that's until I met like some real rough and ready LGBTQ activists and allies who were way older than my parents and were like the age of my grandparents who got it. So I think the other thing is as we put the generational divide on the bench, I think that we also got to put sort of that binary logic on the bench as well. That doesn't always allow us to build lines of solidarity across those divisions. Yeah, I, I appreciate the fact that like you, you said it as putting the generational divide on the bench instead of putting everybody over a certain age group on the bench or something like that. Because I think that, that that generational divide also has inhibited our ability to communicate with one another. My mother grew up kind of depression era. She's not from the depression, but that kind of mindset. And she will reuse and reuse and reuse and reuse some more every little plastic bag that comes into our home. Or she's pissed as hell that you can't get a a refrigerator that'll last for 30 years like you could before. Things that are just disposable nowadays. When we talk about the environment, she's like, you're not even using the stuff that, you know, you used to be able to just fix things. You could fix a TV or you could fix this and now everything's disposable. And so I think it may be that divide that's more a problem than actually the people themselves. And so I think that's important. I love that your mother washes out her trash, her plastic bags. <laughs> it drives me nuts, but I will not, I wash dishes. I don't wash the bags, but. Um, does, does she know they make reusable bags now? Oh yeah, we have them. We got them, we got those for our birthday last year. Um, but but still, when you buy bread or something like that, then it comes in, it comes in a, a bag. So then we need to use it for something. You wash out the bread bag? Anyway, I just wanted to say, Miss <laughs> Janet, if you're listening, I am so sorry. I, I, when I joke with Katie about her being poor is no I'm not trying to disrespect your family it's it's just Katie that I'm trying to disrespect (laughs) (laughs) so the last thing that I think will place on the bench will come from me and it's simple I will place myself on the bench and I think that's going to lead to a few other folks joining me one of the things that I've had to train myself to do 
especially in the pandemic when I rely a lot on food delivery and package delivery companies like Amazon is second guessing how quickly I actually need something. While Amazon has a lot of problems, one of the things that I'm grateful for is the fact that Amazon is like, A, do you want to wait a couple of days so that you can get this delivered in fewer boxes? A, do you want to set up an Amazon day and we'll just make sure all your stuff comes at the same time? And I do think as much as Amazon contributes to sort of our horrible emissions levels, if we make the choice to get our stuff delivered in fewer boxes, to take five days versus the two-day prime delivery, those small choices do have a large impact. So I'm putting myself on the bench because so, so many times it's the case where I'm like, oh my God, I know that I don't need this dog leash tomorrow because I already have one that's not quite broken yet, but I really like this rope. And so I want to do the two-day delivery, even though I know I have a package coming on Friday that this could be packaged with. So all of us who do that, Second guess it next time, and that may be your most faithful next step. That's a wrap on today's episode of The Mourner's Bench. Thank you so much for listening. We appreciate you taking a moment to hang out with us on Tuesdays and Thursdays each week. If you like what you heard, then you know what to do. Hit the subscribe button to remain current on everything happening on the bench. And if you happen to be listening in Apple Podcasts, make sure to rate and review this podcast. This helps us and it helps other listeners who are just now connecting with the Mourner's Bench. And don't forget, you can drop a little love offering in the basket as it is passed by visiting patreon.com forward slash Media. Monthly donations start at $5 and becoming a patron gives you access to exclusive Mourner's Bench and Theolab Media content. We'll be back on Thursday with our first listener view featuring Dr. Elizabeth Albright from Duke University. Holla back. Peace. Sam, are you shitting? <laughs> I really hope that lands in the episode somewhere. <laughs> Can that be the new open to like every Warner's Bench episode?